Support for Alabama Aloud comes from Ernest and Hadley Booksellers of Tuscaloosa, Alabama, who strive to provide a unique selection of new, used, and rare books from local, regional, and international sources. Information about online orders at ernestandhadleybooks.com. From Troy Public Radio, this is Alabama Aloud. I'm Don Noble. Alabama Aloud is the only podcast where you can hear Alabama stories read in their entirety. Today, as we ring in the holidays, we've got two very special Christmas stories. A Luckless Santa Claus by F. Scott Fitzgerald, written when he was only 16 years old, and One Christmas by Truman Capote. F. Scott Fitzgerald is best known for novels such as The Great Gatsby and Tender is the Night. But before that, before he was an army officer stationed in Montgomery and met Zelda Sayre, even before he was a student at Princeton, Fitzgerald was a high school student at the Newman School and at age 16 published this short story in the school paper, The Newman News. Miss Harmon was responsible for the whole thing. If it had not been for her foolish whim, Talbot would not have made a fool of himself. And, but I am getting ahead of my story. It was Christmas Eve. Salvation Army Santa Clauses with highly colored noses proclaimed it as they beat upon rickety paper chimneys with tin spoons. Package-laden old bachelors forgot to worry about how many slippers and dressing gowns they would have to thank people for the next day and joined in the general air of excitement that pervaded busy Manhattan. In the parlor of a house, situated on a dimly lighted residence street somewhere east of Broadway, sat the lady who, as I have said before, started the whole business. She was holding a conversation, half frivolous, half sentimental, with a faultlessly dressed young man who sat with her on the sofa. All of this was quite right and proper, however, for they were engaged to be married in June. "'Harry Talbot,' said Dorothy Harmon, as she rose and stood laughing at the merry young gentleman beside her, "'if you aren't the most ridiculous boy I ever met, I'll eat that terrible box of candy you bought me last week.' "'Dorothy,' reproved the young man, "'you should receive gifts in the spirit in which they are given. "'That box of candy cost me much of my hard-earned money.' "'Your hard-earned money, indeed,' scoffed Dorothy. "'You know very well that you never earned a cent in your life. "'Golf and dancing, that is the sum total of your occupations. "'Why, you can't even spend money, much less earn it.' "'My dear Dorothy, I succeeded in running up some very choice bills last month, "'as you will find if you consult my father. "'That's not spending your money. That's wasting it. "'Why, I don't think you could give away $25 in the right way to save your life. But why on earth, remonstrated Harry, should I want to give away $25? Because, explained Dorothy, that would be real charity. It's nothing to charge a desk to your father and have it sent to me, but to give money to people you don't know is something. Why, any old fellow can give away money, protested Harry. Then, 
exclaimed Dorothy. We'll see if you can. I don't believe that you could give $25 in the course of an evening if you tried. Indeed, I could. Then try it. And Dorothy, dashing into the hall, took down his coat and hat and placed them in his reluctant hands. It is now half past eight. You be here by ten o'clock. But, but, gasped Harry. Dorothy was edging him towards the door. How much money have you? she demanded. Harry gloomily put his hand in his pocket and counted out a handful of bills. Exactly twenty-five dollars and five cents. Very well. Now listen. These are the conditions. You go out and give this money to anybody you care to whom you have never seen before. Don't give more than two dollars to any one person. And be back here by ten o'clock with no more than five cents in your pocket. But, declared Harry, still backing towards the door, I want my twenty-five dollars. Harry, said Dorothy sweetly, I am surprised. And with that she slammed the door in his face. I insist, muttered Harry, this is a most unusual proceeding. He walked down the steps and hesitated. Now, he thought, where shall I go? He considered a moment and finally started off toward Broadway. He had gone about half a block when he saw a gentleman in a top hat approaching. Harry hesitated. Then he made up his mind and, stepping towards the man, emitted what he intended for a pleasant laugh, but what sounded more like a gurgle and loudly vociferated, Merry Christmas, friend! The same to you, answered he of the top hat, and would have passed on but Harry was not to be denied. My good fellow, <clears throat> he cleared his throat, would you like me to give you a little money? What? yelled the man. You might need some money, you don't know, to er, buy the children a rag doll, he finished brilliantly. The next moment his hat went sailing into the gutter, and when he picked it up the man was far away. There's five minutes wasted, muttered Harry, as full of wrath towards Dorothy, he strode along his way. He decided to try a different method with the next people he met. He would express himself more politely. A couple approached him, a young lady and her escort. Harry halted directly in their path and, taking off his hat, addressed them. As it is Christmas, you know, and everybody gives away uh, articles, why... "'Give him a dollar, Billy, and let's go on,' said the young lady. Billy obediently thrust a dollar into Harry's hand, and at that moment the girl gave a cry of surprise. "'Why, it's Harry Talbot!' she exclaimed. "'Begging!' But Harry heard no more. When he realized that he knew the girl, he turned and sped like an arrow up the street, cursing his foolhardiness in taking up the affair at all. He reached Broadway and started slowly down the gaily lighted thoroughfare, intending to give money to the street Arabs he met. All around him was the bustle of preparation. Everywhere swarmed people, happy in the pleasant concert of their own generosity. Harry felt strangely out of place as he wandered aimlessly along. He was used to being catered to and bowed before, but here no one spoke to him, and one or two even had the audacity to smile at him, and wish him a Merry Christmas. He nervously accosted a passing boy. 
I say, little boy, I'm going to give you some money. No, you ain't, said the boy sturdily. I don't want none of your money. Rather abashed, Harry continued down the street. He tried to present fifty cents to an inebriated man, but a policeman tapped him on the shoulder and told him to move on. He drew up beside a ragged individual and quietly whispered, "'Do you wish some money?' "'I'm on,' said the tramp. "'What's the job?' "'Oh, there's no job,' Harry reassured him. "'Trying to kid me, eh?' growled the tramp resentfully. "'Well, get somebody else.' And he slunk off into the crowd. Next, Harry tried to squeeze ten cents into the hand of a passing bellboy, but the youth pulled open his coat and displayed a sign. No tipping. With the air of a thief, Harry approached an Italian bootblack and cautiously deposited ten cents in his hand. At a safe distance, he saw the boy wonderingly pocket the dime and congratulated himself. He had but $24.90 yet to give away. His last success gave him a plan. He stopped at a newsstand where, in full sight of the vendor, he dropped a two-dollar bill and sped away in the crowd. After several minutes hard running, he came to a walk amidst the curious glances of the bundle-laden passers-by, and was mentally patting himself on the back when he heard quick breathing behind him, and the very newsy he had just left thrust into his hand the two-dollar bill and was off like a flash. The perspiration streamed from Harry's forehead, and he trudged along despondently. He got rid of twenty-five cents, however, by dropping it into a children's aid slot. He tried to get fifty cents in, but it was a small slot. His first large sum was two dollars to a Salvation Army Santa Claus, and after this he kept a sharp lookout for them, but it was past their closing time, and he saw no more of them on his journey. He was now crossing Union Square, and after another half-hour's patient work, he found himself with only fifteen dollars left to give away. A wet snow was falling, which turned to slush as it touched the pavements, and the light dancing pumps he wore were drenched, the water oozing out of his shoe with every step he took. He reached Cooper Square and turned into the Bowery. The number of people on the streets was fast thinning, and all around him shops were closing up and their occupants going home. Some boys jeered at him, but turning up his collar, he plodded on. In his ears rang the saying, mockingly yet kindly, it is more blessed to give than to receive. He turned up Third Avenue and counted his remaining money. It amounted to three dollars and seventy cents. Ahead of him, he perceived, through the thickening snow, two men standing under a lamp post. Here was his chance. He could divide his three dollars and seventy cents between them. He came up to them and tapped one on the shoulder. The man, a thin, ugly-looking fellow, turned suspiciously. "'Won't you have some money, you fellow?' he said imperiously, for he was angry at humanity in general and Dorothy in particular. The fellow turned savagely. "'Oh,' he sneered, "'you're one of these stiffs trying the charity gag "'and then getting us pulled in for begging. "'Come on, Jim. "'Let's show him what we are.' 
and they showed him. They hit him, they mashed him, they got him down and jumped on him, they broke his hat, they tore his coat. And Harry, gasping, striking, panting, went down in the slush. He thought of the people who had that very night wished him a Merry Christmas. He was certainly having it. Miss Dorothy Harmon closed her book with a snap. It was past eleven, and no Harry. What was keeping him? He had probably given up and gone home long ago. With this in mind, she reached up to turn out the light, when suddenly she heard a noise outside as if someone had fallen. Dorothy rushed to the window and pulled up the blind. There, coming up the steps on his hands and knees, was a wretched caricature of a man. He was hatless, coatless, collarless, tieless, and covered with snow. It was Harry. He opened the door and walked into the parlor, leaving a trail of wet snow behind him. Well, he said defiantly, Harry, she gasped, can it be you? Dorothy, he said solemnly, it is me. What, what has happened? Oh, nothing. I've just been giving away that twenty-five dollars. And Harry sat down on the sofa. But, Harry, she faltered, your eye is all swollen. Oh, my eye, yeah, let me see. That was on the twenty-second dollar. I had some difficulty with two gentlemen. However, we afterwards struck up quite an acquaintance. I had some luck after that. I dropped two dollars in a blind beggar's hat. You've been all evening giving away that money? My dear Dorothy, I have decidedly been all evening giving away that money. He rose and brushed a lump of snow from his shoulder. I really must be going now. I have two friends outside waiting for me. He walked towards the door. Two friends? Why, um... They are the two gentlemen I had the difficulty with. They are coming home with me to spend Christmas. They are really nice fellows, though they might seem a trifle rough at first. Dorothy drew a quick breath. For a minute no one spoke. Then he took her in his arms. Dearest, she whispered, you did this all for me. A minute later he sprang down the steps and arm in arm with his friends walked off in the darkness. Good night, Dorothy, he called back, and a Merry Christmas. The story, A Luckless Santa Claus, was first published in Newman News, December 24, 1912, and is read here by permission of the Matthew J. and Arlen Bruckley Collection of F. Scott Fitzgerald, Irvin Department of Rare Books and Special Collections, University of South Carolina Libraries. Truman Capote, as all the world knows, was partly raised in Monroeville and set many stories there. The most famous of his Christmas stories is surely A Christmas Memory, in which he and his cousin Zook prepare fruitcakes. Just as touching, if less well-known, is this story, One Christmas, in which a young Truman visits his father at Christmas in New Orleans. First, a brief autobiographical prologue. 
My mother, who was exceptionally intelligent, was the most beautiful girl in Alabama. Everyone said so, and it was true. And when she was 16, she married a 28-year-old businessman who came from a good New Orleans family. The marriage lasted a year. My mother was too young to be a mother or a wife. She was also too ambitious. She wanted to go to college and to have a career, so she left her husband. And as for what to do with me, she deposited me in the care of her large Alabama family. Over the years, I seldom saw either of my parents. My father was occupied in New Orleans, and my mother, after graduating from college, was making a success of herself in New York. So far as I was concerned, this was not an unpleasant situation. I was happy where I was. I had many kindly relatives, aunts and uncles and cousins, particularly one cousin, an elderly, white-haired, slightly crippled woman named Suk, Miss Suk Falk. I had other friends, but she was by far my best friend. It was Suk who told me about Santa Claus, his flowing beard, his red suit, his jangling, present-filled sled, and I believed her, just as I believed that everything was God's will, or the Lord's, as Suk always called him. If I stubbed my toe, or fell off a horse, or caught a good-sized fish at the creek, well, good or bad, it was all the Lord's will. And that was what Suk said when she received the frightening news from New Orleans. My father wanted me to travel there to spend Christmas with him. I cried. I didn't want to go. I'd never left this small, isolated Alabama town, surrounded by forests and farms and rivers. I'd never gone to sleep without Sue combing her fingers through my hair and kissing me goodnight. Then, too, I was afraid of strangers, and my father was a stranger. I had seen him several times, but the memory was a haze. I had no idea what he was like. But, as Suk said, it's the Lord's will. And who knows, buddy, maybe you'll see snow. Snow! Until I could read myself, Suk read me many stories, and it seemed a lot of snow was in almost all of them. Drifting, dazzling, fairy tale flakes. It was something I dreamed about, something magical and mysterious that I wanted to see and feel and touch. Of course, I never had, and neither had Suk. How could we, living in a hot place like Alabama? I don't know why, she thought, I would see snow in New Orleans, for New Orleans is even hotter. Never mind. She was just trying to give me courage to make the trip. I had a new suit. It had a card pinned to the lapel with my name and address. That was in case I got lost. You see, I had to make the trip alone, by bus. Well, everybody thought I'd be safe with my tag. Everybody but me. I was scared to death and angry. Furious at my father, this stranger, who was forcing me to leave home and be away from Suk at Christmas time. It was a 400-mile trip, something like that. My first stop was in Mobile. I changed buses there and rode along forever and forever through swampy lands and along sea coasts until we arrived in a loud city tinkling with trolley cars and packed with dangerous, foreign-looking people. That was New Orleans. 
and suddenly, as I stepped off the bus, a man swept me in his arms, squeezed the breath out of me. He was laughing. He was crying. A tall, good-looking man, laughing and crying. He said, "'Don't you know me? Don't you know your daddy?' I was speechless. I didn't say a word until at last, while we were riding along in a taxi, I asked, "'Where is it?' "'Our house? It's not far.' Not the house, the snow. What snow? I thought there would be a lot of snow. He looked at me strangely, but laughed. There never has been any snow in New Orleans, not that I heard of. But listen, hear that thunder? It's sure going to rain. I don't know what scared me most, the thunder, the sizzling zigzags of lightning that followed it, or my father. That night, when I went to bed, it was still raining. I said my prayers and prayed that I would soon be home with Souk. I didn't know how I could ever go to sleep without Souk to kiss me goodnight. The fact was, I couldn't go to sleep. So I began to wonder what Santa Claus would bring me. I wanted a pearl-handled knife and a big set of jigsaw puzzles, a cowboy hat with matching lasso, and a BB rifle to shoot sparrows. Years later, when I did have a BB gun, I shot a mockingbird and a bobwhite, and I can never forget the regret I felt, the grief. I never killed another thing, and every fish I caught I threw back into the water. And I wanted a box of crayons, and most of all, a radio. But I knew that was impossible. I didn't know ten people who had radios. Remember, this was the Depression, and in the Deep South, Houses furnished with radios or refrigerators were rare. My father had both. He seemed to have everything. A car with a rumble seat, not to mention an old, pink, pretty little house in the French Quarter with iron-lace balconies and a secret patio garden colored with flowers and cooled by a fountain shaped like a mermaid. He also had a half-dozen, I'd say full-dozen, lady friends. Like my mother, my father had not remarried, but they both had determined admirers and, willingly or not, eventually walked the path to the altar. In fact, my father walked it six times. So you can see he must have had charm, and indeed, he seemed to charm most people, everybody except me. That was because he embarrassed me so, always hauling me around to meet his friends everybody from his banker to the barber who shaved him every day, and, of course, all his lady friends. And the worst part, all the time he was hugging and kissing me and bragging about me, I felt so ashamed. First of all, there was nothing to brag about. I was a real country boy. I believed in Jesus and faithfully said my prayers. I knew Santa Claus existed. And at home in Alabama, except to go to church... I never wore shoes, winter or summer. It was pure torture being pulled along the streets of New Orleans in those tightly laced, hot as hell, heavy as lead shoes. I don't know what was worse, the shoes or the food. Back home, I was used to fried chicken and collard greens and butter beans and cornbread and other comforting things. But these New Orleans restaurants... 
I will never forget my first oyster. It was like a bad dream sliding down my throat. Decades passed before I swallowed another. And as for all that spicy Creole cookery, just to think of it gave me heartburn. No, sir, I hankered after biscuits right from the stove and milk fresh from the cows and homemade molasses straight from the bucket. My poor father had no idea how miserable I was, partly because I never let him see it, certainly never told him, and partly because, despite my mother's protest, he had managed to get legal custody of me for this Christmas holiday. He would say, "'Tell the truth. Don't you want to come and live with me here in New Orleans?' "'I can't.' "'What do you mean you can't?' "'I miss Souk. I miss Queenie. We have a little rat terrier, a funny little thing, but we both love her.' He said, "'Don't you love me?' I said, yes, but the truth was, except for Souk and Queenie and a few cousins and a picture of my beautiful mother beside my bed, I had no real idea of what love meant. I soon found out. The day before Christmas, as we were walking along Canal Street, I stopped dead still, mesmerized by a magical object that I saw in the window of a big toy store. It was a model airplane large enough to sit in and pedal like a bicycle. It was green and had a red propeller. I was convinced that if you pedaled fast enough, it would take off and fly. Now, wouldn't that be something? I could just see my cousins standing on the ground while I flew about among the clouds. Talk about green. I laughed and laughed and laughed. It was the first thing I'd done that made my father look confident, even though he didn't know what I thought was so funny. That night, I prayed that Santa Claus would bring me the airplane. My father had already bought a Christmas tree, and we spent a great deal of time at the Five and Dime picking out things to decorate it with. Then I made a mistake. I put a picture of my mother under the tree. The moment my father saw it, he turned white and began to tremble. I didn't know what to do, but he did. He went to a cabinet and took out a tall glass and a bottle. I recognized the bottle, because all my Alabama uncles had plenty just like it. Prohibition moonshine. He filled the tall glass and drank it with hardly a pause. After that, it was as though the picture had vanished. And so I awaited Christmas Eve and the always exciting advent of Fat Santa. Of course, I had never seen a weighted, jangling, belly-swollen giant flop down a chimney and gaily dispense his largesse under a Christmas tree. My cousin Billy Bob, who was a mean little runt, but had a brain like a fist made of iron, said it was a lot of hooey. There was no such creature. My foot, he said. Anybody would believe there was any Santa Claus would believe a mule was a horse. This quarrel took place in the tiny courthouse square. I said, There is a Santa Claus, because what he does is the Lord's will, and whatever is the Lord's will is the truth. And Billy Bob, spitting on the ground, walked away. Well, looks like we've got another preacher on our hands. I always swore I'd never go to sleep on Christmas Eve. I wanted to hear the prancing dance of reindeer on the roof and to be right there at the foot of the chimney to shake hands with Santa Claus. 
And on this particular Christmas Eve, nothing, it seemed to me, could be easier than staying awake. My father's house had three floors and seven rooms, several of them huge, especially the three leading to the patio garden, a parlor, a dining room, and a musical room for those who liked to dance and play and deal cards. The two floors above were trimmed with lacy balconies, whose dark green iron intricacies were delicately intertwined with bougainvillea and rippling vines of scarlet spider orchids, a plant that resembles lizards flicking their red tongues. It was the kind of house best displayed by lacquered floors, and some wicker here, some velvet there. It could have been mistaken for the house of a rich man. Rather, it was the place of a man with an appetite for elegance. To a poor, but happy, barefoot boy from Alabama, it was a mystery how he managed to satisfy that desire. But it was no mystery to my mother, who, having graduated from college, was putting her magnolia delights to full use while struggling to find, in New York, a truly suitable fiancé who could afford Sutton Place apartments and sable coats. No, my father's resources were familiar to her, though she never mentioned the matter until many years later, long after she had acquired ropes of pearls to glisten around her sable-wrapped throat. She had come to visit me in a snobbish New England boarding school, where my tuition was paid by her rich and generous husband, when something I said tossed her into a rage. She shouted, So, you don't know how he lives so well, charters yachts and cruises the Greek islands. His wives! Think of the whole long string of them, all widows, all rich, very rich, and all much older than he. Too old for any sane young man to marry. That's why you are his only child, and that's why I'll never have another child. I was too young to have any babies, but he was a beast. He wrecked me. He ruined me. Just a gigolo. Everywhere I go, people stop and stare. Moon, moon over Miami. This is my first affair, so please be kind. Hey, mister, can you spare a dime? Just a gigolo. Everywhere I go, people stop and stare. All the while she talked, and I tried not to listen, because by telling me my birth had destroyed her, she was destroying me. These tunes ran through my head, or tunes like them. They helped me not to hear her, and they reminded me of the strange, haunting party my father had given in New Orleans that Christmas Eve. The patio was filled with candles, and so were the three rooms leading off it. Most of the guests were gathered in the parlor, where a subdued fire in the fireplace made the Christmas tree glitter. But many others were dancing in the music room and the patio to music from a wind-up Victrola. After I had been introduced to the guests and been made much of, I had been sent upstairs. But from the terrace outside my French shuttered bedroom door, I could watch all the party, see all the couples dancing. I watched my father waltz a graceful lady around the pool that surrounded the mermaid fountain. She was graceful, and dressed in a wispy silver dress that shimmered in the candlelight. But she was old, at least ten years older than my father, who was then thirty-five. I suddenly realized my father was by far the youngest person at his party. 
None of the ladies, charming as they were, were any younger than the willowy waltzer in the floating silver dress. It was the same with the men, so many of whom were smoking sweet-smelling Havana cigars. More than half of them were old enough to be my father's father. Then I saw something that made me blink. My father and his agile partner had danced themselves into a niche shadowed by scarlet spider orchids, and they were embracing, kissing. I was so startled. I was so irate. I ran into my bedroom, jumped into bed, and pulled the covers over my head. What would my nice-looking young father want with an old woman like that? And why didn't all those people downstairs go home so Santa Claus could come? I lay awake for hours, listening to them leave, and when my father said goodbye for the last time, I heard him climb the stairs and open my door to peek at me, but I pretended to be asleep. Several things occurred that kept me awake the whole night. First, the footfalls, the noise of my father running up and down the stairs, breathing heavily. I had to see what he was up to, so I hid on the balcony among the bougainvillea. From there, I had a complete view of the parlor and the Christmas tree and the fireplace where a fire still palely burned. Moreover, I could see my father. He was crawling around under the tree, arranging a pyramid of packages. Wrapped in purple paper and red and gold and white and blue, they rustled as he moved them about. I felt dizzy, for what I saw forced me to reconsider everything. If these were presents intended for me, then obviously they had not been ordered by the Lord and delivered by Santa Claus. No, they were gifts bought and wrapped by my father, which meant that my rotten little cousin Billy Bob and the other rotten kids like him weren't lying when they taunted me and told me there was no Santa Claus. The worst thought was, had Sook known the truth and lied to me? No, Sook would never lie to me. She believed. It was just that, well, though she was sixty-something, in some ways she was at least as much of a child as I was. I watched until my father had finished his chores and blown out the few candles that still burned. I waited until I was sure he was in bed and sound asleep. Then I crept downstairs to the parlor, which still reeked of gardenias and Havana cigars. I sat there thinking, now I will have to be the one to tell Sook the truth. An anger, a weird malice, was spiraling inside me. It was not directed toward my father, although he turned out to be its victim. When the dawn came, I examined the tags attached to each of the packages. They all said, For Buddy. All but one, which said, For Evangeline. Evangeline was an elderly colored woman who drank Coca-Cola all day and weighed 300 pounds. She was my father's housekeeper. She also mothered him. I decided to open the packages. It was Christmas morning. I was awake, so why not? I won't bother to describe what was inside them, just shirts and sweaters and dull stuff like that. The only thing I appreciated was a quite snazzy cap pistol. Somehow I got the idea it would be fun to waken my father by firing it. So I did. Bang! 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 He raced out of his room wild-eyed. Bang! 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 
Buddy, what the hell do you think you're doing? Bang, bang, bang. Stop that. I laughed. Look, Daddy, look at all the wonderful things Santa Claus brought me. Calm now, he walked into the parlor and hugged me. You like what Santa Claus brought you? I smiled at him. He smiled at me. There was a tender, lingering moment, shattered when I said, Yes, but what are you going to give me, Daddy? His smile evaporated. His eyes narrowed suspiciously. You could see that he thought I was pulling some kind of stunt. But then he blushed, as though he was ashamed to be thinking what he was thinking. He patted my head and coughed and said, Well, I thought I'd wait and let you pick out something you wanted. Is there anything particular you want? I reminded him of the airplane we had seen in the toy store on Canal Street. His face sagged. Oh, yes, he remembered the airplane and how expensive it was. Nevertheless, the next day I was sitting in that airplane, dreaming I was zooming toward heaven while my father wrote out a check for a happy salesman. There had been some argument about shipping the plane to Alabama, but I was adamant. I insisted it should go with me on the bus that I was taking at two o'clock that afternoon. The salesman settled it by calling the bus company, who said they could handle the matter easily. But I wasn't free of New Orleans yet. The problem was a large silver flask of moonshine. Maybe it was because of my departure, but anyway, my father had been swilling it all day, and on the way to the bus station, he scared me by grabbing my wrist and harshly whispering, I'm not going to let you go. I can't let you go back to that crazy family in that crazy old house. Just look at what they've done to you. A boy, six, almost seven, talking about Santa Claus. It's all their fault, all those sour old spinsters with their Bibles and their knitting needles, those drunken uncles. Listen to me, buddy. There is no God. There is no Santa Claus. He was squeezing my wrist so hard that it ached. Sometimes, oh God, I think your mother and I, the both of us, we ought to kill ourselves to have let this happen. He never killed himself, but my mother did. She walked down the second all road 30 years ago. Kiss me, please, please kiss me. Tell your daddy that you love him. But I couldn't speak. I was terrified I was going to miss my bus. And I was worried about my plane, which was strapped to the top of the taxi. Say it. I love you. Say it. Please, buddy, say it. It was lucky for me that our taxi driver was a good-hearted man, because if it hadn't been for his help and the help of some efficient porters and a friendly policeman, I don't know what would have happened when we reached the station. My father was so wobbly he could hardly walk, but the policeman talked to him, quieted him down, helped him to stand straight, and the taxi man promised to take him safely home. But my father would not leave until he had seen the porters put me on the bus. Once I was on the bus, I crouched in a seat and shut my eyes. I felt the strangest pain, a crushing pain that hurt everywhere. I thought if I took off my heavy city shoes, those crucifying monsters, the agony would ease. I took them off, but the mysterious pain did not leave me. In a way, it never has, never will. 
Twelve hours later, I was home in bed. The room was dark. Suk was sitting beside me, rocking in a rocking chair, a sound as soothing as ocean waves. I had tried to tell her everything that had happened and only stopped when I was hoarse as a howling dog. She stroked her fingers through my hair and said, Of course there is a Santa Claus. It's just that no single somebody could do all that he has to do. So the Lord has spread the task among us all. That's why everybody is Santa Claus. I am, you are, even your cousin Billy Bob. Now go to sleep. Count stars. Think of the quietest thing, like snow. I'm sorry you didn't get to see any. But now snow is falling through the stars. Stars sparkled. Snow whirled inside my head. The last thing I remembered was the peaceful voice of the Lord telling me something I must do. And the next day I did it. I went with Sue to the post office and bought a penny postcard. That same postcard exists today. It was found in my father's safety deposit box when he died last year. Here is what I had written him. Hello, Pop. Hope you are well. I am, and I am learning to pedal my plane so fast, soon I will be in the sky. So keep your eyes open. And yes, I love you. Buddy. The story, One Christmas, was first published by Random House in October 1983 and is read here by permission of the Truman Capote Literary Trust. We hope you don't keep Alabama Aloud all to yourself. Subscribe to our podcast and share it with a friend. Better yet, write us a review in the iTunes store. It helps other people find the podcast. Also, give us a shout-out on social media. Alabama Aloud is a production of Troy Public Radio and produced by Austin Toy and Kyle Gassett. Special thanks to Matt Clower, Buddy Johnson, and Michelle Mowry. So, until next time, when you'll hear more of Alabama Read Aloud, I'm Don Noble. Thanks for listening, and happy holidays. Happy holidays.